Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 47. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, we have a very special guest, a comedy juggler, motivational speaker, and very interesting uh, raconteur, Dale Jones. But before we get to Dale and his story, let's thank our many, many sponsors. They're growing uh, exponentially. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds good. Let's start with the IJA. They're always number one because they're number one in my heart. International Juggers Association. And what's coming up is our big festival in July. July 10th through the 16th in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Check out the newsletter at juggle.org for all the details. All the special shows, special workshops, special events, and a special festival director, me. Dan, the festival director Holzman. Not very good at making up middle names, but hopefully good at directing the festival. Let's thank our second sponsor. It's Ringdama. That's right, the exciting new skill toy that's sweeping the nation. It's cleaning up, as they say. You can find all the details about that at ringdama.com. You wear it like a ring, but you play it like a toy. Also, check out Ringdama on YouTube. Getting more uh, videos weekly and more content. So, if you have a Ringdama, get ready because there's going to be a big video contest announced soon. And our final new sponsor is Zing Toys. That's right, Zing, short for amazing. Zing Toys is sponsoring the, the podcast by giving away thumb chucks. That's right, they have an illuminated toy called the Thumb Chuck. They'll be giving away 350 thumb chucks at the IJ Festival. So I'm glad to promote them here on the podcast. I'm glad to give away the great toy at the IJA. All right, enough delay, enough brouhaha. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 47. My special guest, Mr. Dale Jones. Hi, Dale. Hey, how you doing, Dan? I'm doing well. Where am I, where am I finding you at? Where do you live at, Dale? I live in Manchester, Missouri, which is about 25 miles southwest of the St. Louis area. Is there a good juggling scene out there? Is there a local club? Other professionals you hang out with? You know, there is a juggling club. However, I haven't been there in years. I love my job. I love performing, but I would like try and go out there, and it, it, it would seem more like work to me than fun because, you know, when I practice, it's very hard, and just practicing with you know, other people around, I still practice. So it was too much like work. Do you consider it practice or do you consider it rehearsal? Yeah, I consider it rehearsal. Yeah, I think most professionals, like when we go to practice, we might work on some new stunts, but like we're practicing our show. We're sort of, you know, right. and so sometimes for us, maybe it's better to do it by ourselves or not in a situation with other jugglers. Is that what you find? I, I do. In fact, other people just are distracting to me. I don't even like it when I do it outside around here and neighbors come up and start commenting because it just it takes away from what I'm trying to accomplish. And what kind of comments do you get? I know for myself when I juggle, it's always amazing the public's perception. Like, why are you doing that? Or what are you doing? Or they just, they just ignore you as if you're doing something strange. What's your take on how people respond to you when you're juggling in public, just practicing or something like that? You know that brings up a great story that I have. When I when I was in college, one of the uh, places I went to college was the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And the people there are all from the St. Louis area, and they 
are very, very serious. There's no socializing going on there. And I used to practice between classes because, I mean, I was a good juggler. And maybe it was because I was good, but I would have so many people come up to me and say, you'll never get anywhere like that. You should be studying. You should be doing something. You should be working on your homework. And you." Sh-. And I would just be dumbfounded by these comments. And I finally started saying, you know, there are people tossing a Frisbee right across from me. Why aren't you going and talking to them? Do you think it's because people understand the Frisbee? Oh, they're playing a game. They're having fun. But juggling doesn't belong? Like juggling only belongs in the circus or like not a, not a recreational activity? <laughs> I don't know. I was astounded. Maybe it was because they could tell I was good at it. And they were afraid that I would try and do something with it. I don't know. But these people don't even know me. They have no idea who I am. I just I thought it was rude. <laughs> I wonder too sometimes it seems like people are afraid you're going to ask them for cash like if they see you playing the frisbee they don't think oh he's going to play the frisbee they're going to ask me to, to sponsor his frisbee playing but if they see you juggling maybe they think oh he's doing that for money well I guess that could be true but I'm not from California California has a lot more street performing than around here so I don't think people would think that automatically here and what, what made the people so kind of rigid and, and conservative? Was it the kind of school or, I mean, these are young people you're talking about. Uh, they, they sound kind of, kind of harsh. Well, St. Louis is a very conservative place. In, in fact, very, very difficult to make money in St. Louis as a performer. Almost all my work, and this ended up helping me because it gave me a more national act, but very, very difficult to make a living in St. Louis as a performer. They think you want to, you know, oh, well, I guess, you know, I could pay you 70 bucks to do your show. Right. You know, and yeah, so it is a different situation that you, that you have out in California. Well, times have changed out here, too. I mean, it's, it goes with the economy, right? When the economy is booming, the money trickles down and the performers get paid more. When times get tight, and budgets tighten up, even in California and you know, other areas, and the work dries up a bit. So I don't think that's just a St. Louis phenomena. I'm sure that's true. Is that where you grew up? Is that where you were raised in St. Louis, around that area? Yes, I, I was raised in University City. In fact, the, the Bacalors, you lived in University City. And at one time, when I, when I first started becoming known – St. Louis was like a little juggling capital. It was very interesting. We had the uh, we had Gravity's Last Stand here. We had myself. We had we had a few others, and and it was a pretty well known place for juggling. But I kind of lost touch with all that. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be like that today. I just sort of lost touch. Again, I use juggling more as a career and not as a social thing. Right, and you did a lot of traveling. So even though you you're, you're a, a local juggler. Your career is mostly fairs and festivals, so you were on the road quite a bit. Yeah, and that brings up a point, too. Um, I chose fairs because one of the first things I did after I left Ringling Brothers, and I just flat didn't like Ringling Brothers, um, but I, I left them, and I, I gave them two weeks' notice, which was probably good for me in the long run. Sure, professional, but, yeah. Yes, but when I left there, I already had an offer 
uh, I had somebody say at the clown college graduation, look, if you decide you don't like the circus, I want to be the first person you call. Hmm. So I did that, and I had a contract in the mail within, I don't know, two days after I called him. I was surprised at how fast it came. But I was doing school assembly tours, which were which were big back then, and there were companies that only did that. And I have to admit, I mean, I was rather naive as a performer. I thought that I had a pretty darn good show, but I was always very realistic about audience response and and knowing that I needed to improve or not improve. And where I went on my first national, I, I call it national, it was really a regional tour, was up to North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska. And I mean, I would do like every little town in the state. You go back in the backwoods and, and you're not as funny and hip as you <laughs> thought you were. Exactly. <laughs> a whole different set of... a. Uh relatability people have different issues that they they understand and respond to but but i was never a, a stupid guy i mean i could i could always tell geez you know this needs work you know i want to be funny wherever i go and i want i want to you know have an act that is going to go over anywhere not just go over but be the best thing they've seen in a long long time it took me five and a half years of constant touring during the school years to get a show together like that. And when everywhere I went, they said that this is the best act we've ever had. Then I knew I was really ready for the quote, big time. Now you went to clown college. Why didn't you like the Ringling experience? What about it turned you off? Well, there were a lot of things. First of all, I mean, you lost money every week. Right, the pay was what, like 150 a week or something crazy like that? 100 it was 100 and yeah, it was 155 a week, but <laughs> you had to you had to pay for your room on the train. You had to pay oh. exorbitant prices for your meals. There's really? such a romantic thing about the circus, yeah. You know, the circus like oh, they all eat together and you know, sure. they they feed you and it's such a big camaraderie. Well, I mean, I'm sure you know, everybody has friends, but no, it's really not like that at all, especially with Ringling Brothers at the time. That train, to me, was a moving company town Okay. in the way of company towns in the past where the employer would take advantage of you. And their goal was to get every penny back from you. <laughs> I mean, they even charged you from the to, to take the bus from the train to the performing venue. Really? I mean, it was it was crazy. And, and the only way people could really make money, which is hard to believe, but it's true, was to do other jobs besides being a clown. So you could, you know, besides being a clown, you could uh, sell uh, cotton candy gotcha. in the stands. You could, right, right. Do concessions. You could, do the, you could work in the pie car. You could do all kinds of things. But being a clown is like a 60-hour-a-week job. Once you put that makeup on in the daytime, if there's multiple shows, you don't want to take it off until you're done. It would be crazy. Now, were there other jugglers in your class that you that you went on to become professionals, or who was in your group there in, in clown college? Um, yes, there were. Let me see who. I worked with some clowns recently. Did you know Toto Johnson or Greg DeSanto? No, I think they came – I think they were probably after me. This was a long time ago. This was in 1978 when I graduated. Okay, yeah, yeah. 
Well, actually, it was the class of 77, and I was with the circus in 78. Yeah, it was a long time ago. I'm, I'm old. I'm 60 years old now. Well, not that much older than me. I'm, I'm 55. We're kind of contemporaries. I certainly remember you from back in the day, from the early IGA festivals and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, we are. We are. We're, we're very much peers. I mean, oh, I remember sure. when, I remember when uh, you would. Be, what was that one show we were we were both going to be on together, and then it fell through. But you as um, the passing. No, I'm sorry. You as the Raspini brothers. And uh, I and I was in New York. I can't remember the show. Oh gosh, you know. <laughs> it all fell through, and and I was gonna like be the one-handed juggler, and, and you guys were gonna go on and say, uh, okay, well, what do you think of that? And I was gonna, I was supposed to say, oh, that's nothing. See what I can do with only one hand. And I remember the producer was very. Uh, it was it was kind of scary to me because it was the same producer that Jerry Springer had. And I was afraid they were going to make a mockery out of me, and right. I didn't want that. And so I was surprised, but they agreed to all my um, requests. My, uh, I made them sign something that that wasn't the intent at all, and because you know, I, I was very afraid of it. But then it all fell through anyhow. Well, you have a very unique story. I mean, for the people who don't know you and your story, you uh, are billed uh, as the only one-handed juggler. Is that how you bill yourself? I actually bill myself now as the one-handed juggler, so good I'm ambidextrous. Yes, I was the first person that anybody really knew of that decided to become a juggler with only one good hand. Now, I have to, I have to say there's a caveat there because according to, I think it was Claude Crumley, I think the founder of the IJA, but that might not be the right name. But anyway, he had told me that there was a, a duo back in vaudeville, and one of them only used one hand, but he, he had to cover it up in those days. He couldn't really show because, you know, disabilities were, were much different. Yeah, more taboo back then. back then, yeah. Yeah, they were taboo. So I don't think I was the first one-handed juggler really, but as far as being known sure, um, and and being open about it, yeah, I was the first one-handed juggler, and the the most um, important aspect of that was that I invented a way to make it easier. It was at your right hand that was injured, is that correct? Yeah, when I was eight years old, I fell off of a jungle gym, and I landed on my right arm and hand, mm. and I broke it very badly. I mean, I could tell right off the bat that it was broke. All the kids were impressed that I knew it, but I mean, it would right. be hard not to, but... but uh, what happened was it was casted bad, and there was a blood clot. Mm. And it's kind of ironic, but the same person who saved my oldest brother's arm um, actually ruined mine. And in a blood clot in 1964, when I was eight years old, was a huge deal. There, there were not pills that you could take. They didn't even know aspirin was a blood thinner. Right, there was no blood thinners, yeah. Yeah, so what happened was... Uh, it took 10 operations just to save my arm, and they, they called in a circulation specialist, and basically they went around the clot to save my arm. But when they got the clot out, and remember it was very dangerous because a clot could go to your heart and kill mm. you. Sure. They actually wanted to remove the arm and hand. That was that was the big thing. But my I, I don't know how, but somebody convinced them, no, let's try this. And remember I was eight. Sure. It must have been a very scary time. It must have been very intense and scary. Do you remember 
the feelings? I mean, it must have been as an eight-year-old. Yeah, know. it was it was horrible. I mean, yeah. it was absolutely horrible, and and uh, I don't like to try and remember it. I no, I, I don't mean to you know to make you yeah. Oh no, no, that's okay. I I always tell people that I did not have this wonderful childhood that people talk about, and and you know, mine was like filled with pain because. By the time I was 15, and right before I saw a juggler for the first time and wanted to juggle and tried it, I had finished up, and I finished up at Shriners Hospital, but I had had 25 operations wow, to man, get the tough. maximum, yeah, to get the maximum movement yeah. out of my hand, and I can only move two fingers, and I can sort of do a pinch, but it's it's not a direct on pinch because there wasn't enough circulation left. Uh, in my thumb to move the thumb around where they wanted to where I could get a perfect pinch. And you were right-handed to begin with. You were right-handed as a child? Yes, I was right-handed. And, and even that was, I mean, that that was hard to switch sure. hands. I mean, I, I, it would have been much, much harder had I been an adult. But at, at eight years old, you know, there were things like sentence dictation. Do you remember sentence dictation? I remember we had to do a lot of handwriting, a lot of cursive that obviously don't have to Yeah, yeah, that. yeah, which which kids don't even have to do anymore. But sentence dictation was where you write whole sentences and you had to get the spelling right and all yeah. that. And, and we did that for sure. And, and I, you know, I had switched hands, so I was really slow when I got back to school trying to write with my left hand. And I remember, you know, for years I would have to, like, stop the teacher. You know, could you could you go back? And finally they would all get frustrated and go, no, I can't go back anymore. No, I'm sorry. I can't go back anymore. And they were really doing me a favor because I, I had to learn to do it faster. But it, it was it was not a fun time. But, I mean, I don't want to talk about that through the whole thing. But it, it is important. No, no, but that's that's the back story. I mean, at, at 15, your life did change, yes. Part of the deal is, I think, that if you're looking at your story is, you know, as jugglers, a lot of us are drawn to activities that we think we can excel at. That's like, okay, that's something that's 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 a fit. So, but to be someone right. who has an injured arm and say, okay, I want to be a juggler, that's really over the top. That's really a, a, a very brave and out-of-the-box thing to approach. So it is definitely a big part of your story. Right, it is. And, and I, I have to say, though, it wasn't exactly like that. I mean, I'm, hmm. I'm a planner, and I can get into that more later sure, on. Please. But I've always been kind of a planner. I, in my mind, I'm always thinking – Okay, well, what can I do with this? How far can I go with this? And I, I've, I've always been a very, very realistic person. You're never going to, you know, hear me say that I was the, you know, I, I'm the best ever or what. I'm always very realistic, and and I was at the time too. But what happened to me was I did keep getting better at juggling once I started. But I think it's very important for everyone to know that. I came up against this horrible obstacle, and that is the people's perception of juggling, which is, can you do three? Right. Because as a one-handed juggler, I was absolutely terrific with two balls in one hand. I mean, I probably could do more than anybody with two balls in one hand or two clubs. I remember doing a couple clubs, and people were astounded that I didn't even have to do double spins to do it in one hand. And I mean, to me, it was nothing. I just... I couldn't understand why they were astounded, but so I was really good with two. But when I came up with a, immediately after I decided I was going to want to make money at this was, can you do three? Can you do three? Can you do three? And I used to hear it in my sleep. And, 
was like nightmares. And and at the time, I was not fast enough at juggling to do three in one hand in any traditional way whatsoever. Did you explain to people that two with one hand was harder because it's two balls with one hand versus three balls with two hands? They didn't buy that, did they? <laughs> well, Dan, it's like you have to give up at something like that sure. because, I mean, it, you know, to explain yourself to every single audience that you work for is just, no, first they of all, see very three. frustrating. And yeah. yeah, yeah. So they want to see three. Well, this is the part of juggling in me and how I ended up that I think is very interesting. And it, it's, it, it's almost enough to make me believe in religion. I mean, I don't know if that's why I finally came to believe that there is a God, but for years I was agnostic, but it was almost like a destiny thing. It was supposed to happen to me sure. because see, I come from this very inventive family. On my father's side, I could go back and just tell you all the inventive people and what they did. You probably wouldn't even believe it because it's so dramatic. And I can tell you my grandfather invented a way to reproduce pictures two years before Kodak did. And my dad used to tell me, he's like, oh, yeah, Kodak could try and come over and see that machine and all this. And he, he would say, dad would say, quick, hide everything, lock the doors. You know? Kodak and, 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 and he couldn't really patent it because there were other things that had already been invented that were in that machine. But he knew. He knew how to do it. And then my father invented something during World War II that instantly gave him recognition. They had promoted him twice. They wanted him to go to Annapolis. They, they were all kind. And he, and he pretty much wrote his own ticket after he invented it. And so anyway, I come from this inventive family. And so I'm looking at this. All right, how can I do free? How can I do free? And what I came up with was, and you know of it, but. Mm -hmm. A lot of people won't, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. Please. But it's now something I call the bounce multiplex, and it became the bounce multiplex juggling system. And what it is is the, the very basic pattern is that I throw two balls, and two balls go up. The, the top ball goes down, bounces on my knee or tennis racket or whatever, goes up and down again before I have to worry about the next cat. Yeah, the same pattern I would do off the golf club, like with the, when I do like a multiplex with the right hand, and then one, one ball goes back to that same hand, the other ball exactly. goes and bounces off the knee or the golf club or the tennis racket. You know, I've seen, I've seen a little bit, of, I've not seen, I, I guess I haven't seen you do the bounce multiplex off the golf club, but you're very good on a golf club. <laughs> I know that. Well, I, I remember because it's, it's basically when I do it, I think, oh, that's the same basic pattern that you would do off the, the tennis racket. I mean, I can recognize okay, well the then, same pattern. Yeah. Th then it's got to be. Well, you know, now I, I, I'm going to admit, I didn't realize it at the time, but years later, I took a look at that and realized that this had slowed juggling down and allowed me to do tricks. And tricks, of course, is the most important aspect of a juggling routine. Without tricks, you've got nothing. What are you going to do? Juggle two balls and or three balls and in one hand, and then just keep juggling through? No, in five minutes, everybody's going to walk away. Yeah, boy, that guy was good at that. No, you need but, stunts and tricks. Stunts and tricks. Yes. So that is where I started to become a professional and could actually think of myself 
as somebody who might be able to get enough work to make a living at this. But that was the first time I ever thought of that. And this was like probably two or three years after I was a pretty darn good juggler. But like I say, I was very realistic. So is that the time you decided to go to clown college? So you're in high school, you're 15, you learn to juggle, you develop this bounce juggling system. Is that in your mind you think, you thought, okay, I can be a professional juggler? Was that the dream at that point? Um, not quite yet. First, I got an act together and I began street performing around St. Louis. And when I say street performing, I was the only one who was doing it. I would go to parks and, and go up to a big bunch of uh, picnickers, you know, or right. people having a uh, family reunion or something. And I'd play my bugle and start my act. <laughs> and then I would ask for tips. And in those days, I still remember some people paying me to leave. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but, but uh, that's not the first time you've heard that. But uh, And I kept getting better and better. And when I then I started street performing at parks, and I actually had a route that I would go, go to on the weekends, and my parents hated it. I, I don't think any parent wants their kid to be a juggler. Would you agree? Well, I think their image of it is. I remember for me, when I actually got to perform for the President Reagan, then everything changed because my grandfather was a huge Reagan fan. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. I became quite the, the success story in everybody's mind. But as a kid, the thing I heard most was, do you have to do that in the house? Yeah. Uh, oh, was, yeah, yeah. I heard that a lot. And hey, and I, we had a two-story house. And I guess I would drop a lot, and it was it was like that mm. was my thing. Is all you do is drop all day long. Yeah. I'm like, well, <laughs> you don't see me actually juggling. You just hear me making mistakes. It was not encouraged until I had success. So I, I well, isn't isn't that how juggling is though? It's failure, 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 success. Well, I do admit though, my mom did bring me to my first juggling club. So I think at that time she saw it was a hobby, but I was supposed to go on to college and become a lawyer or something legitimate. I had gone to a private school, and that was the path that was laid out for me. So yeah, giving it up to become a juggler, not exactly encouraged until I had success. Yeah, so you were you know, the same boat. But see, my parents never, ever, 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 and my mother is 92, she's in great shape, but even today, never accepted what I did. I was a bum, and that's just the way it was. My mother still wants me to go back to school. She says, it's not too late to go back to school. I'm 55. Oh. <laughs> and I told her I was thinking about you know, retiring or slowing down. She's like, well, it's not too late to go back to school. Yeah. <laughs> so I think out of everything I have done, if I had gotten a college degree, that might have been more, even more than you know, my, my juggling success. I think that was her, her dream for me. Well, I promised my parents I would eventually get a college degree, and I did. You got a degree in media, though. That sounds like a pretty worthwhile subject. Does that, does that help you in your career? Absolutely, and it was all planned. Right. By the time I went back to school, I had already finished two years before I went to clown college. And, oh, that takes me back. You asked me when I was ready for clown college. It wasn't until I had street performed for a while. But, okay, to get back on this. What happened was I'd already finished two years of school, and my parents made me promise that I'd get a college degree because to them, that was the only way you could ever succeed in life. Yeah. I wasn't opposed to that, especially because I knew I could do it like between engagements and that kind of thing. But I never quit performing. 
And going back to the destiny thing, it seems like whenever I was out of funds, there'd be some kind of crazy call that I'd get that would be great and set me up for the next few <laughs> months or something. You know, so, you know, you can see this, me thinking, oh, my gosh, there, God is involved in this. You know, he doesn't want me doing anything else. I eventually, I, I tried another school after UMSL. I didn't like UMSL. There was no social life, like I said, and, and I didn't like it. People were rude and coming up to me telling me. What are you doing this for and, and all this? And so then I tried another one, and I didn't like that school, and I eventually ended up at Webster University, and they were cool. They were fine. Is that in St. Louis? Webster? Where is that, Webster University? Uh, well, Webster is all over the country. They, they were, like, very successful becoming the school uh, after people got out of the service for the GI Bill. But, yes, uh, they're actually based – in Webster Groves, Missouri, which is very close to me, about 10 miles away, I guess. I went there, and they were great. And I got this plan, which I had had when I was going to go back to school. Why not get a media degree? Or it wasn't really called a media. Why not get a PR degree is what I was thinking. What did they call it? Communications? Is that what they would call it back then? You know, it's called different things. Yeah. You know, it's public speaking. It's uh, that kind of thing. Well, the the public speaking. I mean, I could already do that, but sure. but I, I certainly didn't go to to school to become a speaker. I knew that performers needed a publicist. I mean, if you really wanted to get anywhere, you had to get some kind of media attention. I mean, I've always known that. To look at it as a shortcut to getting better jobs, which of course it is. Well, you're one of the few jugglers to get in People magazine. That was a big coup. Which, which is very interesting because how I did that, I I had uh, written the Chicago office many, many times at People magazine trying to get them. And the week before the New York office called me to do the interview and the story, the Chicago office had rejected me. Huh. Right, And in fact, I even showed the person that eventually came down and did the story from Chicago my rejection from their office. <laughs> right. And it was really interesting. And it was only then, a very interesting part of the People magazine article, because it was very antagonistic. I don't know. Guy was one of these journalists that thought he could get much more from me if he was a jerk. Hmm. And my wife would tell you to this day that she's never seen me so nervous during a interview because – I mean, I was running my hands through my hair because I knew this guy was getting ready to leave and say, yeah, this didn't go anywhere. This was sure. terrible. And uh, it wasn't until I showed him that I had actually been rejected that he said, oh, my God. He goes, I think you really did get, did get this on your own. Right, right. And then he became very serious, and it was it was all much different. But it was funny because he tried to interview my mother and about you know all the success that I had had and – and uh, my mother just would do nothing but run it down. And, and <laughs> I thought that was, he thought that was so funny. And what was the title? Like, uh, is wallpaper next or something like that? Or? Yeah, like a one-handed wallpaper yeah. hanger. I, I don't know. I didn't even get it at first. But, but it, was a, it was a great article. And for a while, I had like, I don't know, 27 agents across the country that all were going to get me jobs. But, of course – when something like this happens, they all think they won't have to do any work. You know right. how that goes, Dan. I sure do, Dale. I've been in that situation <laughs> where, where you think they're going to do the work. They think you're going to do the work. 
and nobody does yeah. the work. <laughs> nobody does the work. <laughs> Still, though, I think uh, in my memory, I can think of maybe the Flying Karamazov brothers. I think, uh-huh. I think Bob Nickerson yes, he and did you yeah. are the only three jugglers I can think of that have been in People magazine, in my memory. And it was, to me, it was like a rectifying article because you don't, you probably, well, maybe you have heard this, but see, I was supposed to be on The Tonight Show, like the, the summer before, actually the May before, I think. Oh, I don't know this story. Okay. Because of the Statler Brothers tape, they had heard about it. They asked for the tape from the National Network because it was a very, a very good appearance, and they loved it. I knew somebody out there could, that could agent uh, me from the circus, and one of the first things you have to do to be on The Tonight Show, unless you live there maybe, which you, you live there, so it was a little bit easier for you. Sure. I mean, we were able to have Jim McCauley come out and see us, you know, see us live. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But they had to put you on a comedy club, and you had to kill in the comedy club, and that was the last thing. So I had Jeffrey Losef put me in uh, the Laugh Factory sure. out there in, in, Hollywood, in yeah. L.A. Yeah. yeah, in Hollywood, right. And I was killing. I was killing every night, but I had to be out there. The agreement was I had to be out in California for like 12 days um, in order for them to come and see me. And the first week, and I hate to stereotype Los Angeles, but it was just exactly like anybody here is like, yeah, yeah, we'll get to you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> They're back and easy, you know. And so it wasn't until the next week that they even got serious. And Tuesday, I... I got a call from them, and they were going to come out and see me that night. Right. But they didn't show. And so I was like, oh, man, what the heck happened? This was going to be great. And I got to tell you, Dan, I really believed with Carson, somebody with a story like me, he'd have brought me over to the couch. Sure. I really believe he would have. I'm not even sure why you had to be, like, vetted in the comedy club. I mean, to me – your story is what is the most interesting thing. I mean, sure, you're a good performer, but Carson could have made a lot out of that, you know, bringing you to the, the panel. I know. And so this is what was so disappointing to me. I, I was convinced that, I mean, that would have been the only juggler probably to ever get on the couch. But whatever, here's what happened. They called me the next day and they explained to me that Michael Landon had called and said he was going to make his last appearance before he died of leukemia, which had been the big promise that Michael Landon made. And they instantly said they didn't have time for me anymore. And I'm like, well, okay, so I can come out again. So no, 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 Carson's retiring. Uh, and He's just going to have stars on. And so that was it. So I was so disappointed. So, I mean, you can imagine how People Magazine made up for that to me. Well, I would like to have been in People Magazine. That's something we never were able to do. Because I think for there, you needed more of a story. You needed more to be more interesting than just comedy juggler. Yeah, maybe so. But I, I still remember when I saw the Karamazovs for the first time. It's interesting that you brought them up. The It was in Washington, D.C., and I was touring. I was on tour, and they were performing there. And I went with my wife to see them outside of the theater. The only publicity, the only thing they had was the story from People magazine. And I thought to myself, and I never, ever would have dreamed that I would have got in People Magazine, too, at the time. But I thought to myself, wow. Well, I know. I mean, back back in the day, like when we were growing up, People Magazine yeah. 
like, what was the deal? I mean, that was something that you aspired to. And if you had become a celebrity of any sort, at a certain point, yes. you'd be profiled in People magazine. That's right, because there was no internet. No. It wasn't like today. Today, if you were in People magazine, big deal. But at the time, oh, it was so huge. And I got to tell you about that article. It was so interesting. It, it didn't take long for the reporter to do the story once he got serious. But the photographer, oh, my gosh. They, <laughs> that was before digital film. And, and I got to say, they, he did like 35 rolls of film on me to get the two or three pictures. I mean, there's one shot of you juggling tennis rackets, as I remember. Yes, and he put up a he put up a big background for that. Right. And that was the big shot of me juggling tennis rackets. But there was also a shot of my wife and I in the kitchen, and I think there was another one, which I can't remember what it was. I'd have to go down and get the article now, but let's just say those were the only two. It was enough. Right. But it was so interesting. And I, and I asked the photographer, I said, okay, so why all this? And he goes, well, you're going to be in People magazine. You're going to be kind of famous. Suppose years later, you do something either good or bad. Right. We've got you. <laughs> right, 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 right. We have everything on you. We have your little kid pictures. We have Funny. your pictures all the way through when you grow. And I'm not kidding. He took everything, went through the scrapbook, took all the pictures. And so I'm like, holy cow. That's when you go on your shooting spree. You'll be, they'll be ready to profile you. <laughs> exactly. I, I never, ever – who would think of something like that? But media did because – they were um, sending somebody down and spending all the money to get this done. Right. Why not then, huh? Yeah. So why not get everything? Did this help? Were you working the fairs at this time? Was this a big boost for your your personal business? It was a huge boost in other things, sides fairs. I had already like defeated in the fair market, and and I, I wanted I want to go back to you know after the school centers sure. and why I didn't get into colleges, which was which was the big thing. This was a little before you, Dan, but not much. Yeah, it's like the Edward Jackman time, like a few years before us. Ah, the Edward Jackman. And in fact, he was the guy I was going to bring up. He was the big college act at that time. Huge. He was huge in college. Exactly. And the whole thing was, oh, get into colleges. They pay so much money. Oh, gosh, it's so great. And I had felt that I'd already done that. Right. I mean, it wasn't colleges, but it was schools. Okay, 70,000 miles a year. This didn't sound great to me. No one-nighters. And, of course, in colleges, it can be even more than that. I mean, I, it just – it was like, gosh, I've already <laughs> done that. I'm not going to – I don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to go somewhere, and I wanted to get into a venue, and I knew they were out there. Something had to be good that was big time, paid good money, and you could be someplace for about, I don't know, a time. Sure. Well, it ended up that the only fairs that had good money to pay were mostly the big fairs, big either county or big state fairs. Right. Those run 10 and 12 days, sometimes 14 days at a time, and it was perfect for me. I mean, I knew I would have to travel, but I didn't want to wake up and not know where I was anymore. You know, I I was tired of that. Right. She wanted longer engagements, 10, 14 days, be in one place at least. And I wanted to make good money. The venue simply fit. Now, in the 90s, clubs were actually paying money. And in fact, it was right after that People magazine article. I got some really clubs out of that, but they weren't really interested in me. What they wanted to do was blow that article up about six foot high and put it outside their door. 
and then fill the comedy club that way. Yeah, the funny thing about us in comedy clubs is we also did some headlining like during the peak in those 90s. Because like you say, for a second there, comedy clubs were paying well, and a variety act could go in and make good money. For a second, I love that. Well, you know, a year or two. It, <laughs> it, was, was, it was a second. It was a second. In relation to how long we've been in juggling. But we, one time we, we did this, I think it was a Catch a Rising Star or improv, one of those. And we killed. We did really well. It had a great, great set. And the, the, the owner came back and goes, you know, we probably won't bring you guys back. We're like, what do you mean? We just, we had a great set. He goes, people don't drink while they watch you. He goes, when they watch comedians, they drink. But you guys, they're watching too close. And they're not drinking as much. I'm at Zanies. Yep, Zanies. Another chain. In town Chicago. Okay? Yeah. All right. Big comedy club. The press I got headlining there was just fantastic. I mean, it was incredible. And we got so much press. The guy had told me before they brought me in that we weren't going to fill the place because people were going back to – the kids were going back to school that week. So, but anything we can get is going to be better than what we would have had. So he brings me in and I'm coming from the Michigan State Fair and I get there. And as soon as, you know, the plane lands, just deluged with all these requests, you know, they they need me here. They want me to go to the comedy club immediately. And after that, we're going to do. And so anyway, the gist of the story is they ended up filling every table at that comedy club for the entire time I was there except for one table. And I always, I'll never forget nightclub owners because I never really cared for them. They just like the biggest jerks in the world. And Well, they're about the money, right? I mean, they, they, their, their priorities are pretty close. Yeah. It's all about, it's all about them. Yeah. Yeah. And just like you say, they didn't want to bring you back because people didn't drink. Well, anyway, so what do you think I heard at the end? Well, we didn't fill this one table on Saturday <laughs> night. Right, right, right. <laughs> The day after opening night there was like the night that people could come beforehand and drink early. Right. That was the only night, and I, I got to admit, Dan, I absolutely bombed because the other comedians went on before me and everybody was soused right. by the time they got to me. And, you know, there is not one cuss word in my act. I mean, I don't need it. No, no, no. That's not your style, yeah. I don't need it at all. But these were, you know, these were young people, the ones that go to comedy clubs. I always talk about them as being the funny bone crowd because I don't think there's any comedy club that has dirtier acts than, than the funny bone. But anyway, I mean, I felt bad about this, but I knew it would all be different the next night. Right. And there was only one show that night. And I remember talking to my oldest brother who, who I was like, very he ended up dying suddenly, but but uh, he told me, he goes, oh, well, you're going to have to change your act. You know, you don't need to be family. You can do what they want. And I'm like, well, you know, wouldn't that be the easy way? Well, yeah, throw in some curse words and bring in some sexual stuff. He's, anybody can do that. I've learned to be really funny. Yeah, I'm not a big, a big swear or a big drop to their level kind of guy. You try to bring them to your level, right? I mean, I don't really care. It's not yeah. that I have anything against it, but it's not me. And and the places that I perform at fairs and things like that, a lot of it is in the Bible Belt. Well, geez, I'm not going to even touch that stuff. So it isn't because I have, you know, I'm no prude. No, no, it just doesn't fit uh, your, your vibe, your, the way you perform. 
Exactly. So so anyway, it was just like I said all the rest of the time I killed. But yeah, so that was the story of about the comedy clubs. But that you know, a couple of years later, I would start calling these comedy clubs that would have me, and they're like, "Oh, like you say, it only lasted for a second. Well, yeah, now we'll bring you in, but you have to pay your own expenses, and we'll pay you five hundred dollars for the whole time." Yeah, I went down pretty quick. I remember we did an audition for Mitzi Shore at the Comedy Store in in Hollywood, the very yeah. famous Comedy Store. Once we we went in there, had a really good set, lots of laughs. You know, I was thinking, wow, we're getting more laughs than some of these comedians. And then we got off the stage, and she's like, oh, she had a very distinctive voice, she's like, you're funny. Too bad we don't use acts like yours. I'm going, exactly. What do you mean acts yeah. like ours? I think Variety, whether it was funny or not, was pigeonholed as, we don't do that. And you bring up an interesting point because I don't know if you saw the Facebook post from Scott Neary. He was just on one of those late night shows. I saw that. Yeah, like James like the James Corden or whatever that late night show is. Kind of juggling in the background or came out. And he felt that they wasted him. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, don't you know? Very rarely are you going to get a TV appearance that you like that isn't going to be set up exactly how you don't want to do it. I mean, it was fine. He came out, and he was part of a scene, and he did a little juggling, and, you know, you're the juggler in the background. What, what are you expecting? I don't know. <laughs> exactly, and we know that, but apparently he didn't. Well, it's like when you see a commercial with a guy talking about a car, and in the background there's a juggler. You don't want to be the juggler. Yeah. You, want to be, you want to be the guy talking about the car. You well, I do. I do, too. That I do. I don't want to be the guy that goes on stupid human tricks and say I was on the David Letterman show or whatever because of my stupid human trick. They're making fun of me. I don't really want that. Yeah, but sometimes you got to take the credit, right? I mean, it wasn't like Letterman was having guys on any other way. I understand that, and I will, I will say that I, I do understand that, but not at you and I's point. Well, I mean, at, at that point in the day. But there was a time a few years back I went on that Jay Leno show for the Meal or No Meal segment as a solo. Yeah. They had you in the audience, and they had you, like, they didn't want you to portray that you were a professional entertainer. You had to pretend you were something else. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were like, well how, well, how could you do that? How could you go back on after you were on Carson, like, doing regular spots, and now you're back in the audience? And I'm like, well, it's an acting job. It's what's available, and it's, it's a chance to get back on the show. You have to sort of see what's being offered and what is realistic. And for Letterman, Stupid Human Tricks, even though I never did it, simply because it was back east and to fly all that way and get bumped or something would have been awful. I understand the point that you're making. And as long as you do it like that, that's fine. But to actually think you're going to get somewhere from oh, doing no. that, no. no and we couldn't have done it like, you know, we we're doing spots on Carson and then we're going to do Stupid Human Tricks. But at a certain point in our career, like any TV would have been okay. For me, I mean, maybe not for the Raspinis, but for me, certainly. Well, also, Dan, you live out there where a lot of it happens, and you can do that more easily. You can go, you know what, why not? This is a paycheck. And I exactly. certainly probably would do the same thing if I was out there. Well, and back in the day, like back in the 80s, being in Los Angeles, I mean, we had so many of these comedy shows. Being there in that town was pretty important to us at that at that stage of the 80s when we... Oh, I think it was. Oh, I think sure. it was. I mean, look at what I went through with the Carson show. I mean, I had to be out there for 12 minutes. You know, that's not cheap. Nobody's paying no. for it. I ended up going and staying with a uh, troop of puppeteers at their house because we had worked together at the Kentucky State Fair. 
Because, I mean, I did the thing for a few days, realized, okay, this isn't going to happen anytime soon. I don't got the money for this. Yeah. But you did the Statler Brothers. That was a good show. We, did you do Crook and Chase, too, or, or the, the Statler Brothers? We did Crook and Chase. We never did the Statler Brothers. I never did Crook and Chase, but I, I, I did the Statlers, and, like, it was it was phenomenal because I got to do, like, the third show. when it was It was actually their third pilot, they called it. It was the first time, really, even with, with Ringling Brothers, which I, I had done a special on the Clown College, and I was the main juggler in the big juggling production number they had, and they did my story. And In fact, I worked with Michael Davis. Davis and I were the stars of the juggling part. Right. He was a, also had been a, a clown in Ringling Brothers, Michael Davis. Yes, he yes he had been. He had been. And did you know um, Greg Dean, too, then, who was his clown partner, Greg Dean? I met Greg Dean at one of the juggling conventions, but I don't really know him. Okay, yeah. I knew Michael. In fact, Michael asked me to, like, go on Broadway with him, but I knew that he wanted me to be the, the serious juggler and, okay, now let me do the funny stuff, and I, I couldn't. I, I wasn't <laughs> right, right. That. No, you like yeah, your comedy. But, you like doing the comedy. Well, I mean, I don't want to perform any other way. Yeah. Which do you like better? Do you like people laughing better or being impressed by your skills? Which which gives you more satisfaction? Well, it's definitely the laughing. In fact, if you really look at my act, I mom juggling acts because there are times in my act when people are sure that I'm going to do something because every other juggler does. Right. At that point, show off. Okay, really, I have great skills. Watch this. Even though they were pretending they didn't have great skills. And I don't do that. To me, when the comedy is over, that's it. So I want to have a big blow-off at the end that's really funny. And I don't care then about showing, you know, oh, my gosh, I am so much better on the unicycle. Of course I'm better on the unicycle. (laughs) Well, I always felt you had a – a little bit of a W.C. Fields approach too, kind of a, not, I don't know how you'd call it, not antagonistic, but more like authoritative is sort of your style. It, it is kind of, and it's funny that you mentioned that because he was my idol as I was growing up after I learned juggling. I don't know why, but uh, I had remembered seeing W.C. Fields juggle in a film in like the seventh grade, and I got all interested in him and in his life and, and, uh, I loved it because he was a very good comedy juggler for his time. Now, at the time, it was mostly silent because of vaudeville, and he became a headliner, and and, uh, that's how he got into movies. I like when people tell me, they come up and they go, did you know that W.C. Fields was the world's greatest juggler? Oh, no, he was not the world's greatest juggler. I'm like, no, I mean, he was a good comedy juggler for his day, like you were saying, in that tramp style, and certainly he got much more success. And his real success came later on, yeah. We know about juggling, Dan. We would never say that. But here's the thing about juggling. It's so fast. There's so many things in juggling. I mean, I always tell people, well, yeah, I've had a lot of success, but in juggling, I'm just a beginner. Well, you never, yeah, you're just basically scratching the surface. All you do is practice your act, Dan. (laughs) I mean, you may be trying a few new things so you don't get bored to death, but... Basically, you know, your act is just this little tiny slice of what juggling is. And you came up with some interesting, unique takes on it. Like, instead of eating the apple, you eat a head of lettuce. How how does that decision come about? That's a funny routine. When did you decide to eat lettuce instead of the apple? 
here's the story on that. All right, after I'm done with the circus and I'm out on the road. Right, doing fairs and um, stuff, yeah. There was, yeah, well, no, I'm out on the road doing school stuff. Okay, yeah. Okay. There was a guy by the name of Bobby Sandler. Sure, ate the apple. You know, he was the first juggler I ever saw on TV because he was sponsored by the apple companies. Exactly. He went everywhere. Oh, my gosh, was he a success. And that was his whole thing, basically. He rolled the balls on his head yeah. or something. But, but basically, his routine was eating the apple. That was the end. That was the only thing anybody ever remembered him for. And so he was really big at the time. He had been on the, the uh, I think, Flip Wilson show and some other things. Anyway, all these schools that I went to, they heard that I was – you know, I was a juggler, and the first thing they did was throw an apple at me. And unless I could eat that apple and juggle, I was not a juggler to them. Okay. Now, I have to do that with one hand. I can't catch good enough to do a, a yeah. three-handed or a two, three-handed, two-handed um, routine with the apple. But the problem is that all that mucus from an apple makes it's sticky. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. It it makes me well. It is sticky, but it also it made me choke. And I mean, I was gagging and coughing. <laughs> right. Not in a comedy way, to, in a Heimlich way. Yeah, well, yeah. Somebody was going to have to do the Heimlich on me. I knew this was going to continue, and so I thought, geez, I you know I got to do this eating bit because everybody's going to keep throwing the apple at me. So what can I do? What can I do? So I went into the produce department of a grocery store one time, and basically, I thought about what could I do that would work, but it's got to be round. I got to eat it. And the first thing I picked up was a head of lettuce. <laughs> right, right, right. I didn't choke as much on the head of lettuce, but it instantly became a trademark because the lettuce breaks up much funnier than an apple ever did. Yeah, it makes a big mess. Yeah. It makes a big mess, and audiences love big messes, and it became one of my signature tricks of the routine and there was no stopping it hmm. at one point i think i realized enough people had seen it and i wasn't getting the laughter that i used to and i'm like oh geez this is a signature trip what am i going to do and at that point i decided i would either depending on the situation either go toward the audience sure. or pretend that i had goofed up and threw the lettuce into the audience, and it brought the laughter back just the way I wanted. Yeah, whenever you can kind of spit on the audience or somehow in include the mess into their area, uh, yes. whether it's water. But something like lettuce is perfect, too, because it's messy, but it's not going to be staining anybody's clothes. It's funny messy. It is It is funny messy. Now, over the years, there's probably been like five people or something that were mad at me because, like, <laughs> you know, but, you know, nobody's ever going to be. You know, have a show that nobody gets upset with. But yeah, it's been a trademark thing, and that's how it came about. Some other things that happened to me on my school assembly tours were I was trying to figure out what works. And what's really interesting is I actually came up with the same arm movements that Steve Martin became famous for in the wild and crazy guy stuff. Gotcha. Remember when he'd throw his arms out to the side? Excuse me. And kind of do that shuffling. <laughs> and I'm sure Steve Martin never saw me because I was doing schools, but I'm not saying you know anything about that. But I actually did that before he did. What happened was as soon as he became famous for it, I started getting really bad reviews because people were saying, oh, uh, just you know, imitate Steve Martin. 
So I had to drop all that out of my head, which was really sad because, man, does that rile up an audience. And look where look how Steve Martin turned out. What a terrible career he's had. Oh, yeah, I know. But, man, did it rile up an audience. And, and I found that out right off the bat. You know, as soon as I started playing around, and this is very important to any young juggler, keep trying. Try to make your show better. Come on, don't don't keep the same act that's just mediocre. You've got to, like, learn what you can do to be the best that you can possibly be. There's no stopping. There's no ending. It's Even today, I try and do more. Sure. I always tell the people I work with, your act has to be like a shark, always moving forward. If it stops moving forward, it sinks and drowns. We have a mutual friend, Niels. Niels Dunker. He's my main coaching student. He saw my bounce multiplex stuff on the web, and he instantly wanted to meet me and all this. And we've become really good friends, and he's a really – what a great guy. And he really gets it. He yeah. really gets it. He knows he's older people. He's, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't try and tell you what to do. He just watches and listens and, and just a terrific kid. I mean. He just finished his uh, juggling book. He's like, Dan, now I have a book I wrote. It's like, the guy, the guy's unstoppable. He's a very uh, yes, impressive he character. Yeah, yes, he really is. He really is. But, but anyway, yeah, I was trying to tell him because he said he was trying to get into comedy juggling. And, and Neil's immediately stopped me and he goes, well, my coach told me it should be every second line. And I'm, okay, that's great. <laughs> that's probably me. <laughs> I always say it goes like this. I, I always go, it goes, information, joke, information, joke, information, joke, information, joke. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it used to be every third line is left line. But obviously, as you get better. Sure. Yeah. You want to wrap up fact, those last for a minute. Yeah, exactly. And you don't even, you know, I love what used to be called toppers, and now are called tag. Or capper. Yeah, they're still called toppers, I guess, or tags. Well, I, I'm from the old school, so I call it toppers. But now that a lot of times they call it tags because you don't have to explain the, the premise of the joke. Well, it, it, it exists with a pre-existing setup. Like, you're able to use that pre-existing setup. Exactly. It's quicker. It's faster. There are so many tags or toppers in my routine, and it just kept getting more and more and more and more, and uh, that's why. Well, that's why we did well in the comedy boom, because we were very big on getting the same amount of laughs per minute as a comic. And, you know, if you could do that as a variety act, it's, it's harder. You were talking about W.C. Fields, and I was saying how much he was my idol. Well, for years when I watched his movies, though, I would have to admit – Okay, I, I I laughed. I mean, I thought he was funny, but we're so from such different generations. And in his day, you know, laughs didn't have to be all the time. But now they're rapid fire. You've got you've got to throw them out there quickly. But I finally realized what was going on. And I finally realized in the movies that at the time, what we were really doing or what people were really doing was taking vaudeville and basically putting it on screen so you could do the same sort of thing that you did live and maybe it wouldn't make sense today like in i think it's the old-fashioned way one of the wc fields movies in that movie he would break character and follow the the bartender whenever he saw him anywhere because he he, you know, as if he knew he was going to go and reopen the bar. 
<laughs> so he'd, he'd break character in the movie, and at first I was like, well, this is stupid. You can't break character in the movie. But at the time, you could because people didn't understand movies yet. Well, a lot of times he would do like the, the pool act or the golf act or the dentist act. These were things, like you say, that yes. people perfected in vaudeville. And they like the, like uh, like the Marx Brothers would go on tour, and they would tour a play version of their movies. But when exactly. they got to the movies themselves, because of the camera work and the way it was set up, a lot of times mm. it was a much different process. And like you say, their understanding of making movies, what movies were, was, was pretty primitive back then. Not not as advanced as we it was there. primitive. It was different, and what they thought the audience wanted to fill the seats were very similar to what used to fill the seats. But also they left time, too, I think, for laughter. Like, they understood the need in the movies to leave time after the lines, which is not something yeah. they really do today. You know, it's like no, the pacing no, they was don't. much slower. Yeah, right. Now let's talk about another one of your uh, – of your. I didn't mean to cut you off. Let's talk about another one of your traditional uh, or your sort of – I guess you'd call it uh, innovations. Was your telling of the flower pot. Uh-huh. Instead of shaker cups, you had these plastic flower pots. I was also very jealous of those. So I had no idea where you got them, and you used those as shaker cups. Yes. Okay, here's what happened. I was so interested in juggling. I mean, as a one-handed juggler, as much as you can do with balls, even, you know, though I can do six nowadays. Of course, at the time, I couldn't. I use my right hand a little bit when I when I do one, but I have to use beanbags to kind of use my stomach to help hold it as I go. But I knew that I had to do more as a one-handed juggler than – Exactly. And something with not that many props, like a hat, balancing tricks where you can do it with one, um, would become very important in extending the time of my act. But one day I'm I'm watching TV and this old show comes on. I've seen it a couple other times, but every time it came on, I watched because there may be a trouble. It was an old show. It was called Vaudeville, and it was in black and white. And they would have act after act, just like vaudeville. That was what the show was called. Sure. And they had a guy there who had taped them or painted them to look like flower pots. And I knew about props at the time. And I bought it that they were flower pots. I mean, I knew that they couldn't be clay pots because clay pots would break. I thought they were flower pots. So I went right out. And at the time, the manufacturers hadn't gotten smart yet. And you could find flower pots that would nest together. Yeah. And then come apart and go back together quickly. Eventually, the manufacturers learned in plastic pots they could get more in a package to send to the store if they all if they all fit snugly together. I know, but as a sugar cup user myself, when you see them separated like that, you're like, oh, those can work as shaker cups because, they, like you say, they have that gap that doesn't yes. not snug. Yes, but it, obviously, if it's snug, it's not going to work. How many of those did you buy? Did you buy a whole supply at one time? or? Well, not at first, Dan, but years after I did that trick, all of a sudden my supply went from like having enough to not having any Yeah. because the manufacturers had learned to, to put them in a box where they stuck together. And you could get more in a box like that. So for literally like almost two years, I had to take that out of my act because I didn't have anything to do it with. And I hated that because I was good at it. Yeah, you were good. Yeah. So then I walked into Walmart one day and holy cow, <laughs> there's right. these pots. They Their supplier hadn't figured it out yet. 
And so at that point, I did. I bought like 150 flower pots. Well, that's another good lesson for, for young jugglers is sometimes when you see something you like, if there's a prop you like, don't always consume that it'll always be there. Like look at the, look at like uh, tennis cans, like tennis can juggling. Yes. Like now they're going away from the bottoms that are the good bottoms to these kind of like four corner bottoms. Or like ping yeah. pong balls. Ping pong balls have gone from 38 millimeters to 40 millimeters. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if you see a prop you like, whether it's a paddle ball or a goofy little thing, you know, like a flipping mm -hmm. dog or something, yeah. stock up. If you like it, stock up. That's a, a and You know what? That. I still probably have nine pots in my basement. You know, I mean, I'm going to I'm gonna outlive. <laughs> right, right, right. There's definitely times I buy something and then, unfortunately, no longer have a need for it or lose interest in it. And I go, well, why did I end up with 50 of these? But there have been many times where I've been regretted not stocking up, whether it was a xylophone or a this or that, that I thought I could get at a later date. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's no question. I, I don't do that with are my bean bags, which I have a certain prop maker does, and, and um, also my tennis rackets, because I don't think there's going to be any lack of tennis rackets. No, I don't think so. We're kind of getting towards the end of our – it's gone very fast. We've already done over an hour. Was there anything that you'd like to touch on? Maybe we have probably another five minutes or so. Anything you'd like to – touch on that we haven't brought up anything any thoughts about juggling or the future of juggling or juggling festivals or anything about juggling at all this is your time to to express yourself what do you think okay well i obviously love juggling and and uh, i i wouldn't be i wouldn't be in it unless i did and and it's all very interesting to me but i like the creativity in juggling when i see people doing stuff that that i haven't seen a lot of it's much more interesting to me than like, uh, oh, yeah, you know, well, I can do this trick 150 times. And I always think, like, geez, why? After about 20, <laughs> I get bored. You know, I, I could never do that. But I do love juggling. I like the creativity. And you know I like the comedy. Um, in fact, as I get older, I have a very hard time watching things that I used to just be riveted with because I have a certain style and I know myself and I know what I'm interested in and I'm interested in comedy juggling. But on a grander scale, what I really want to tell people is that I've learned throughout my life as the first one-handed juggler, as somebody who had to come, had to overcome a, a tremendous handicap, I would say in juggling Definitely. Um, that disabled people um, have the same basic traits that successful people do. So if you're not disabled, and most people aren't, of course, if you can look at the traits of successful people and copy them and really believe in them, you can become a success. And one of the biggest, well, there's three big ones, but one of them, I think, in my case, was a successful people, a successful person comes up against something uh, they against a wall and they cannot get through the wall they can't figure out you know i can't figure out how to to do this and i need to do it to become a success well the successful person quits beating his head up against the wall and goes around the wall and i think that's very important quit trying to do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again and come up with a solution that's out of the box it's not as hard as people think it is well, I think it's also important what you did, too, which was if you look at a situation and say, okay, look at this as a negative, 
like, okay, I, I'm a, a one-handed juggler. Look out how, how limited I'll be versus the other jugglers who have two hands. Or you could say, this makes me unique. This makes me different. This makes me stand out. And, you know, turn that negative into a positive, which is what you, I thought well, you did and became super successful at it. And that's very true. But I think that has more to do with the other two very important mm-hmm. terms, which are determination and perseverance. Sure. In order to be successful, and especially in show business, a show business is so hard. Don't ever think it's not hard because it <laughs> it's hard. Is. Yeah. It, it's hard. And and you have to work as a calling. I mean, you love this. Any juggler who's going to be a professional loves it. There's no doubt about that. You've got to put so much time in it. You've got to love it. So work as a calling, which is determination and perseverance. Remember I talked about how juggling is failure, 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 success. I mean, there's no bigger example of treating failure as something temporary that leads to your success than juggling. Because every trick is like that. Um, Everything you do is like that. So I think those are really important things that I want to say. And I also have to mention that if you take those things and then, you know, like you have a downside of your career or something or something happens like with me. What happened was suddenly the states that I worked for at these state fairs, and most of them didn't have any money. And I could see that they were going to use little Billy down the street instead of paying me uh, $10,000 to work their fair. They're not going to do that. They're going to use little Billy down the street because they don't have any money. So then I ended up like going to work, and I used to sell mattresses between engagements, and it wasn't that hard anymore. I knew how to succeed. And I set up one of the top 300 mattress stores in the United States. And it became a great job for me. And now I have two jobs at 60 years old. And I just, I mean, like I'm in much better shape than I ever was before in my life. So you can use those things later on in life once you learn them. And like I say, it's not that hard after you know how to do it. It just isn't. Well, Dale, thanks so much for sharing your story and sharing this inspirational message at the end too. The idea that you can do it, right? With, with determination, perseverance, and a love of what you're doing, you can be a success. Absolutely. Just like my friend Dale Jones. And you yeah. can be funny. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, Dale, thank you so much, man. Nice catching up with you. Hey, thanks, Dan. Hey, I'd love, to, I'd love to hear it after it's all edited. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll get it done. We'll get it out in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for being on Drop Everything. Dale Jones. Thank you, Dale. Thank you, Dan. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 47. I found it very interesting, Dale's story, and thank you so much, Dale, for sharing it with me. Let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA. What does that stand for? Well, if you don't know, you're not a regular listener of Drop Everything, so welcome. The IJA stands for the International Jugglers Association, and we're having a festival July 10th through the 16th, and they've put me in charge. It's crazy. There's going to be a lot of great special activities, so please join me and all the jugglers of the IJA, July 10th through the 16th in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Let's also thank Ring Dama, that exciting new skill toy that was invented also by me. It's very me-centric today. Sorry about that. 
But the third one is Zing Toys, which I'm also involved with. All right, it's all about me. And Dale Jones. Thanks, Dale. And you, the listeners. And also, I haven't asked you in a very long time. Go to uh, iTunes. Leave a five-star rating and a nice review. It really helped me bring my listeners up into the double digits. All right, drop everything, except when you're juggling.